The Tom Woods Show, episode 1603. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, when you criticize the Federal Reserve, you get all these lackey-style responses. Why the Fed has made the economy more stable. You don't want to go back to the 19th century, do you? All kinds of arguments like that. Well, you can blow those and others out of the water with my free ebook, Our Enemy, the Fed. Grab it at OurEnemyTheFed.com. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. Bob Murphy Week continues. I gave you a full detailed bio of Bob Murphy last time, but you all know Bob, PhD in economics, extremely prolific, a tremendous teacher, great libertarian theorist, and Austrian economist. And I neglected to mention in yesterday's episode when introducing Bob that we host a podcast together. We, we release a couple of times a month Contra Krugman, which is our podcast dedicated to helping people understand economics by refuting the errors of Krugman. So you can check that out over at ContraKrugman.com. And of course, the other thing is Bob and I host a cruise together known as the Contra Cruise, which you can find out about at ContraCruise.com. This year, we're doing a roast of Dave Smith, the great libertarian comedian and podcaster. We've got Scott Horton coming along, the great expert on foreign policy. Phil Labonte, the vocalist for the metal group All That Remains, is also going to join us. It's going to be a tremendous time. We're not doing it next year for a number of reasons, just personal reasons involving um, you know, just things Bob and I have going on. So if, if, if you want to scratch that itch, now's the time to do it. So ContraCruise.com. Anyway, today, Bob and I are going to talk about Austrian economics, and I'm going to ask Bob about where, given that he's written so much on the subject, where does he think there are flaws or gaps where there needs to be more work done in the edifice of Austrian economics? And of course, uh, Again, I assume most people listening to this know what we mean by Austrian economics, a school of thought that uh, that we generally, people listening to this podcast, believe in. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. All right, this is the nerd episode. Now, if you're in Bob Murphy week and there's a specific episode called the nerd episode, that's a really nerdy episode. I'm just saying, right? I'm just saying. <laughs> so in this episode, we're going to talk Austrian economics and uh, virtually everybody listening knows what that means. Uh, it's a school of thought to which uh, Mises, Hayek, Rothbard, and great many other important economists belong, and which we fully endorse here on the Tom Woods Show. And I was asking Bob yesterday, are there areas where you think libertarians get things wrong or we could, you know, there should be more work done or you know, that, that kind of question? And here I want to talk about Austrian economics and areas where Bob you know, either thinks there should be more work done or is not convinced by the standard version or whatever, uh, because we we do a lot of standard, plain vanilla Austrian economics on this program. You know, here's what the Austrians say about A, B, and C. Now I want to go a little bit beneath the surface and see where there may be some, I don't want to say vulnerabilities, but weak spots that could use shoring up or anything like that. So, Bob, you've got a few of these, so why don't we start with whatever one you want? Okay, sure. So why don't I mention what should be the obvious one for people who know my work is the, the pure time preference theory. So I'm a critic of that, and that's a big chunk of what my doctoral dissertation was on. So let me very quickly just give the, the, the big problem I have with that is the way the term time preference is used in the Austrian literature. There's two possible meanings that are both perfectly valid, but you got to pick one and, and stick with it. 
and I've in, in a lot of the discussions of the pure time preference theory, I've seen Austrians flip back and forth is the argument demands. So for example, one thing you could mean by is to say that, oh, it's just, it's saying other things equal, you know, the, the a, a present good is more valuable than a future good that you'd hire, assign a higher valuation to it. Okay, fine. But then I've seen people say, oh, now depending on, you know, the relative provision of the present versus the future, the degree of time preference could change. So for example, as, as we become um, wealthier, maybe that makes our time preference go down. And so now we're willing to save more for the future because we've more adequately provided. So the, the problem with that though, is now you're not saying other things equal, right? That if, if the, if your relative provisioning can change with the degree of time preference is now it sounds like you're doing more of like a marginal comparison. And so the problem is, okay, so if, relative provision in the future or the other way around. Like if you know there's going to be a drought next year or a famine, maybe that you would say also decreases your time preference um, because it makes you relatively richer today versus next year. Then why couldn't it go negative, right? So in other words, if you can reduce the time preference, but you think it still keeps it positive by changing the relative provision of present versus future in principle, why couldn't that go negative? That you know what, like there's going to be a famine next year. So I would actually give up two units of wheat today for one unit of wheat promised next year. So isn't that negative time preference that present goods are less valuable than future goods on the margin? And the typical response is to say, oh, no, no, because no, other things aren't equal there. And I would say, okay, that's fine. But then it can't be that, oh, because of changing information about the harvest, the degree of time preference shifted. All right. So, so that's an example of the kind of thing I mean, where the term time preference, it, they're not clear as to what it means and it, it kind of bounces around. So that's... So are, are you are you kind of suggesting that in that case, if somebody says, oh, well, all things aren't equal in that case, that this is kind of, it almost makes it tautological. Like as soon as it looks like I've got a counterexample, you just come up with some rhetorical dodge to get around it? Well, I, I mean, the, the way you're putting it there, it makes it sound like it's dishonest or something. And I'm not saying that it is. This, I'm just no, but it could be that it's something that you believe in so deeply that it's just right. instinctive that you respond that way. R right, yeah. So for sure, I think, and it's also like coming from almost incredulity that like if somebody says, oh, uh, you know, do you want to have ice cream in December or in July? And so if you're the guy in December being offered the choice between one ice cream cone now or in July, and I pick the future one, and some and a critic of the pure time preference there says, see, present or future goods are sometimes preferred to present goods. And the person, oh, come on, clearly other things aren't equal. Give me a break. And they, they're, you know, outraged. How can you be giving me this, this silly alleged counterexample? So I, so, so yes, Tom, I, I agree that when I've tried to, you know, when I was writing on this stuff when I was in grad school and talking to other Austrians, I, I was getting the idea that they, you know, like, geez, this guy doesn't know the first thing about, no, what we're saying is you got to hold, and, yeah. and I would be like, yeah, yeah, I know, but look yeah, I already <laughs> know all the caveats here. Yeah. Now so, the, the ice cream example or the ice example I think that is a legit case for the pure time preference theory because as obviously I get different services from ice cream in July from what I get in December. Okay. Right? Let's, let's go down this. Can we go down this path? Oh, yeah, this yeah. Is please, please, okay. please. You know, I'd love to be uh, right. uh, smashed on this. Yes. So Because the thing is, Bob, I, I do so much smashing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I don't I don't I don't get it smashed enough, you know. Yeah, so right. let's do it. This will be like yeah, where the Hulk Hogan gets or no, where Andre the Giant gets body slammed. Yeah, um, <laughs> and, and then, then we'll play this for Jeff Herbener, and he'll be shaking his head, thinking if only Woods had said A, B, and C. But yep, yep. So, where's Herbener when you need yes. him? All right, so okay. let's go ahead. So 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 do you actually before we do this, mm -hmm. do you actually think that the ice cream in December thing doesn't work? Like it it, it does show a flaw with the pure time preference theory. 
Yes. Wow, really? Mm-hmm. I was in the, uh, they used this as an exam question at the um, oral exams for Mises University about uh, about the ice thing uh, years ago. I remember they asked Dan D'Amico and he gave the answer. It's two different goods. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's see what the problem is. Okay, All right, so go ahead. Let's, let me just recapitulate what the standard canonical view is just so people know what I'm recoiling against. So again, the pure time preference theory explains like market interest rates. Like, what's interest about in the Austrian, you know, they have a whole tradition going back at least to Bumbavik saying interest is not about the marginal product of capital. That's what those wacky neoclassicals think. We Austrians know better. And so to avoid confusion, I, Bob Murphy, totally endorse that. That's great. That stuff. Okay. And so the Austrians instead argue what interest is about is time preference and the the pure rate of interest or the originary rate of interest is always positive because time preference is always positive. And so then, you know, like it's an a priori thing and Mises gives some arguments as to why, you know, it doesn't even make sense to imagine a being who wouldn't other things equal prefer sooner to later satisfactions. Okay. So now they've got these, the, the standard, you know, canonical Austrian explanation for interest is to say that there's this thing, universally positive, pure time preference. And, so, and to say, oh, as a rule, present goods are preferred to future goods. That's another way of saying it. And so then people can come up with a counter example and say, what are you talking about? If I'm in the winter and someone offers me a present ice cream cone or the choice of an airtight claim to an ice cream cone that won't be delivered until the future, and I happen to pick the future one, geez, that kind of looks like I picked the future over the present good, right? And then the standard Austrian response is to say, no, because other things aren't equal. Eating ice cream when it's hot out in July gives you more subjective satisfaction than eating the ice cream cone in the winter when it's cold out. And so those are, and for all practical purposes, those are different goods. And so, you know, just like to say, would you rather have a hamburger now or a steak next week? If I pick the steak next week, that's not a, me showing a higher valuation of a future versus a present good. You said those are different goods. Right. Okay. okay. So you're with me so far, Tom? I'm not Yes, I am. Some, I'm right. waiting for that hammer to drop. Okay. So then if you're going to use that argument though, that, that way of arguing, then there's no such thing as multiple units of the same good. So like normally we would say, oh, like with diminishing margin, the 10th gallon or sorry, the first gallon of water I devote to drinking and that sustains my life. So that's really important to me. The second gallon of water I devote to washing dishes the third gallon to blah, 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 the 10th gallon to, you know, watering my lawn. And so it shows, you know, diminishing margin utility and that explains a bunch of stuff in consumer theory. And so I want to say, well, no, wait a minute. What do you mean the 10th gallon of what? Those are different goods. Like, you know, me drinking water provides more satisfaction than me washing the car. So those are different things, right? Hmm. And so if you then take it one step further and say, you know, forget time preference for the moment, just what do we mean actually as subjective value theorists when we talk about the 10th unit of water versus, you know, things that were like the first unit of water as opposed to the 10th unit of tuna fish, those are clearly different goods. And so so what, what does it mean to say the first gallon of water and now compared with the 10th gallon of water versus, you know, whatever, the first gallon of tuna fish in what sense is that still water, even though clearly... So the answer can't be, oh, well, if it satisfies more important ends or desires or satisfactions, that's what makes it a different good. Because then, like I said, there's no such thing as the first, second, third gallons of water. It's just... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's... Jeez. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So... Ah, okay. I, we, we're going to just keep crank because this is the nerd episode. And yeah. so I think, 
you're thinking it through, okay, what we mean, and also too, we don't mean that it's literally like a chemist looking at the first gallon of water in the 10th couldn't tell a difference, or maybe actually the one has 1.01 gallons of water and the other one has 0.99 and maybe one's slightly more acidic. What we mean though, I think, is that the physical things that we're calling units of water are interchangeable from the perspective of the consumer and it wouldn't interfere with their ability to satisfy those different ends. So the thing that we're calling the first gallon that we're going to drink and the 10th gallon that we're going to use to wash the car, we could swap them and he could drink the other one and use the other, the first one to wash it. And that wouldn't, he wouldn't care. They're indistinguishable for the purposes that he has in mind. That's what makes them, quote, units of the same good, right? So it, it doesn't matter what psychic satisfaction you're getting from using them. It matters that you could swap them and that would be the same. So to me, to say a one, you know, do you want an ice cream cone today versus one in July and how that's, to me, that's the same good except for the time element, Whereas to say, do you want a hamburger today or a steak in July? Not only is the time element different, but those are clearly different goods. And so that to me, that's, you know, that's the, the element. Uh, All right. So, so let me, consistent. I realize yeah. that we're, we're, this is a complicated question that you mm-hmm. can go into at great, in great detail. But let me, let me ask you this. All right. Is it your view then that time preference theory seems to describe much of what we see in the world, but there are glaring exceptions that make it not a general rule, or do you think the whole framework has to be chucked? Okay, so I think, I don't think we need to have the law of time preference. I think it's just more, it's safer to just say people care about time. That's one of the elements involved when they evaluate a good is with the date of availability. So just to say like, do you care what color your car is, sure, some, you know, some consumers really do and that's important to them, but I wouldn't say that there's color preference as some principle of price determination. And so, yeah, time is important. And so to me, what the interest rate really is, it's showing the premium on present money versus future money. So that's another problem I have with the pure time preference theory is that it's kind of like a, a real theory as opposed to a monetary theory. And yet interest rates first and foremost are about money. And so I, I would say, that, yeah, that the people care about the timing of, of availability or deliverability of services. And so that's, so yes, interest has to do with time. I mean, it's a price with time quoted in it. So clearly interest is about time. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying though is to say there's this thing called the law of time preference in what seem to be obvious counterexamples. Don't we just got to work them away? I, I think that's all unnecessary. So to, to give another analogy that I used when I was critiquing it, you could try to explain um, like shipping costs and the fact that like the price of produce goes up the further it is from the point of harvest, right? So oranges are going to be more expensive in Alaska than they are in Florida. And, you know, as an economist, you can obviously explain why that is in equilibrium at least, but you don't need to assert the law of proximity preference and say other things equal. Of course, you'd want a good to be closer rather than farther away because if a good were in, around Pluto, you couldn't enjoy it. It's got to be close to you so you can consume. So I could construct a whole law of proximity preference and explain prices you know, because of transportation costs. To, you see, it's empirical and I can do it a priori just thinking about it. And yet you can kind of see, well, no. And you can come up with examples where, gee, if I'm watching a movie, I actually don't want the screen to be two inches from my eyes. So rather than having this, ah, oh, but other things aren't equal... You don't need a law of proximity preference. We can explain everything just fine. So by the same token, I think I can explain 
exchange rates for present versus future units of money without appealing to this universal law of time preference. Wow. All right. I'm going to have to chew on that yeah. a bit. Sounds like someone didn't read my dissertation. Yeah. <laughs> Although you're in good company. Most people have not. So I know. Whereas I thought it was very nice of you to write up that 20-page summary of my dissertation. That was very, <laughs> very sweet of you. Anyway, let's, let's pause for just a minute and come right back. Folks, isn't it amazing that we have all the knowledge in the world at our fingertips thanks to the internet, and yet a lot of people just use the internet to watch cat videos? Well, you and I are going to do something about that thanks to Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community where you can explore new skills in areas ranging from creative writing to photography, graphic design, animation, music and music production, film and video, productivity, marketing, entrepreneurship, and more. It's like Netflix in that one membership gets you access to thousands of classes, but unlike Netflix, instead of spending hours wasting away in front of a television, you're spending time having a blast while improving yourself. With Skillshare's short classes, you can move your creative journey forward without putting life on hold, like I did when I recently took Simple Productivity, How to Accomplish More with Less. Well, you can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com woods and get two free months of premium membership. For two solid months, you get free access to thousands and thousands of classes where you can learn skills that enrich your life and or make you a more marketable person. To start your two free months of premium membership, head over to Skillshare.com slash Woods. All right, Bob, we're back. What is, uh, what's the next? The next one's got to be simpler than that in the yeah, sense yes, that you will, didn't write yeah. your dissertation on it. Sure. So um, I think that Austria, well, so I, I think they should go into like financial market analysis, that this is a great place. And when young, uh, especially if they're quantitatively skilled Austrians, saying, what, what can I do my work on? I, this is like financial markets. So the, the financial market literature, they, um, the condition they use, like for things like, uh, you know, put call parity and stuff like that, like how do you price a certain type of call option, things like that. It's um, the condition they use is no arbitrage, meaning, right? So they just show it, it can't be the case that you can make a pure profit by buying this sort of asset or synthetically creating this kind, as opposed to like general equilibrium, like in a, in a mainstream neoclassical tradition. And so I'm saying the, for the Austrians where it's more open-ended and they're not so much concerned with things just being in the ERE, let's say, the idea of just no entrepreneurs bringing away profit opportunities so that there's like a plain state of rest. I think that type of framework in the Austrian school carries over pretty naturally to the way the quantitative people in the financial economics literature do things. So I think the Austrians could explain. And also, too, just all the stuff about, you know, the Fed causing business cycles and whatever. There's, there's a lot there where I think Austrians actually could appeal to people in the financial sector more than mainstream economists who will do goofy things like deny there even was a housing bubble. So, well, I don't even know what that means. How's that operational? If everyone knew there was a bubble the prices would have collapsed. So there must not have been, you know, that kind of stuff that you get out of the Chicago yeah. school. So right. I think a lot of the finance people, not just ideologically, you know, anti-government types, but just regular people in the financial sector know that, yeah, some of these hyper-rational Chicago school types, they're just, that, that, I can't use that. That's crazy. Whereas the Austrian stuff makes more sense. So th that's an area I think they should go into. But having said that, I think the problem is, and theoretically what's lacking in the Austrian, at least the canonical treatment, is some notion of like like risk. And, and what I mean, let me just give you the example of what I mean. So there's, in the Austrian school, there's like, okay, we've, we've got the ERE where everything is predictable 
And then there's, you know, the real world. And I think they don't, there should be some sort of intermediate case where you can talk about things, you know, having some idea of the riskiness involved. So in the finance literature, it's standard to say, oh, investors, they like stocks, for example, that have a higher expected rate of return, but they dislike volatility. And there's nothing really like that in the Austrian approach to even capture that basic intuition. So the example I use for this, Tom, is, you know, suppose there's an entrepreneur who has a t-shirt company and um, and, the, the, and he's at a, at a college you know, campus and there's going to be a, a game against the big rival. The you know, big rival team's coming into town. There's going to be the big game. And normally what the guy does is he prints shirts for both schools, it's like to sell in the parking lot after or before the game to, you know, to both fans of both teams. And he just you know, makes a, a decent return that way, assuming people still want t-shirts. And then he happens to leave town and leaves his student worker in charge and that kid just has a good feeling. We're going to win. I know we're going to win on Saturday. And he just does the full print run of the t-shirt saying how we won, you know, with the date on it and everything. And then his, the home team does happen to win and he sells the whole thing. The owner comes back and the kid says, look at how much money I made. Isn't, aren't you happy? And the guy says, how did you make so much money? And then he learns what the kid did and he's furious and says, don't ever do that again. You took a big risk. You got lucky. If we had lost the game, you know, we would have had to sell these for rags. And so... In the Austrian tradition, I think like Mises and Rothbard, the framework they give, you'd have to say, ah, that kid was very entrepreneurial. He better adjusted the factors of production to what the consumers wanted than his rivals. And that's why he made such pure profit. And there's no way to really say, but he got lucky. And you can see why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So there's that. And uh, let's see. Another one is, uh, this is just kind of a minor thing. I learned a lot more about like international trade accounts, like things like the current account deficit and like what's what's the difference between a trade deficit and a current account deficit and blah, 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 that stuff. I didn't learn that from the Austrian school. So to be clear, nothing Mises or Rothbard says about international trade is wrong. I'm just saying I got more of that stuff when I worked for Arthur Lafford. He was like using the the framework like that. I think Robert Mundell would have been one of the big names in that area. So I'm just saying... Th- so that's just an area of, that's not that the Austrian paradigm right now is is wrong. It's just, I think it's underdeveloped. And so maybe as, as you know, Austrians continue to write sort of, uh, you know, summary treatments or, you know, like, like in other words, the treatises or whatever, to have something more in, in, in that covering those kind of topics in there. Because I, I think especially now as global commerce becomes more interconnected in this, you know, with tariffs and things being a bigger deal now, and talking about how does the business, like, you know, how, how did the housing bubble get transmitted from one country? That a lot of that stuff isn't really fleshed out. And even things too, like LIBOR and the petrodollar and this stuff. Like it's you, you could read Man, Economy, and State and Human Action, and you wouldn't really know what any of that stuff was. Right, right. And by the way, that's why at Liberty Classroom, where you also teach, that's why I commissioned Jeff Herbener mm-hmm. to do that course on the Samuelson and Nordhaus textbook because it's a it was a commonly used textbook. And you go through a typical economics textbook in college these days, you're going to come across a lot of concepts that are not mentioned one way or the other in the standard Austrian treatises. And you might be curious, what would an Austrian have to say about this or that or the other thing? Hadn't been done before. So I had Jeff do a chapter-by-chapter overview and critique of that textbook. So anyway, libertyclassroom.com is where to go for that. Did you have another one or do we want to do the... Yeah, let's see. It's sort of related to the risk thing, but... I think there should be a, a notion of what, what I'm calling a dynamic equilibrium. So in the standard Austrian works, 
you've got the ERE, you know, with the evenly rotating economy. And so that's where everything repeats. And because everything repeats itself, everybody eventually comes to expect it. So the future is known. And so that, you know, you get rid of uncertainty, um, but also everything repeats itself. And so it's a sta- what I would call a static equilibrium. Okay, and, now stop right there. Yep. Explain to people why would that be useful to have, why would we talk about the evenly rotating economy? What's the purpose of it? Okay, so the one of the main analytical purposes is to distinguish pure profit from interest. So just in terms of like, you know, if factor incomes and to figure out what's causing what or what's attributable to what. So in the evenly rotating economy, there would still be time preference, you know, in the, in the way Rothbard and Mises use those terms. And so that's why you would still like, a process that would take a year to complete, you would only pay, let's say, $90 for the factors of production to make the thing, and then you sell it the next year for $100. And so you make a little over 10% return on your money. That's fine. Even if the people you know making the expenditures now know with certainty that they're going to sell a product for $100 next year, they still only bid up the total factors expenditures to 90 because they still want to get the return on their investment. That's That's due to pure time preference. Whereas, you know, in the real world with uncertainty, some entrepreneurs better anticipate the future. So not only do they earn the standard return due to time preference, they might earn money on top of that because, you know, they they saw that that opportunity and other people didn't. So the factors of production were relatively underpriced because of that opportunity, right? So that's the, st- the standard view. And I won't bother now, Tom, mentioning where I think that leads to problems. Let me just mention what's lacking is I think there's an important role for an intermediate case where things change over time, but those changes are all anticipated. So you still have certainty, but you don't have, it's not the evenly rotating economy. And by having that hybrid case, I think that shows that some of the Austrian arguments that they thought were being driven by the uncertainty were actually being driven by the fact that it was an evenly rotating economy. Um, So just to give an example, a simple one, uh, if you have like a fixed resource like oil. Like there's only so many barrels of oil on earth right now. And every time we burn one, there's one fewer barrel you know, available. You, you can't model that in the evenly rotating economy. So strictly speaking, you couldn't have a th- an Austrian theory of resource prices if you know your baseline is the evenly rotating economy because that doesn't really apply. So in contrast, you could say, well, no, let's just imagine everybody knows with certainty exactly how many barrels there are and they can see it shrinking over time. And then what would the, you know, what would the ringing out pure profit opportunities, what would be left? So what would happen is the, you know, the, the price of oil relative to other commodities would probably go up over time. And so that wouldn't be due to uncertainty. That would just be the, you know, so things like that where and you, you see this a lot of time in the, in the interest literature or the pure time theory literature. That's why I cared about it so much where a lot of the arguments are assuming that the relative price of goods against each other has to stay constant over time unless, you know, there's uncertainty. And I want to say, well, no, in in general, you could know that wheat prices are going to go up in the future or whatever. And, and so that's, that's another area where I think it's a, when you say it, it sounds pretty innocuous, but actually in the Austrian, like I said, canonical treatments, all they really have is the evenly rotating economy is the foil. And then the real world with change and uncertainty. And I think analytically, it would show, it would clarify a lot of arguments or a lot of discussion if we also had an intermediate hybrid case where things change over time, but those changes are perfectly anticipated. Jeez, Bob, you're good. You are good. In fact, (laughs) I think, by the way, the 
the blurbs you got for your book Choice, which is a like a distillation of, of Mises' human action in Murphy Ease. I mean, if I got blurbs like that from my colleagues, and not just Mises Institute-associated scholars, but Austrians and maybe even just some Austro-sympathizers from across the land, I would retire a happy man at that point. I would say, I have done everything I set out to do. To see the, the people in that book, or in, in those first few pages of blurbs, describing you as one of the great teachers of this stuff and going over the top and saying amazing things about you. It, it genuinely makes me proud to know you. Like, I can't believe I know this guy. Like I, and and I, in fact, I was reading them thinking, I knew Bob was good. I didn't think he was this good, but apparently, <laughs> apparently he is. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like you need to learn more economics time to realize how much, uh, I'll just stop there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all people need to hear. If you, if you listen to Contra Krugman, you know what, the, uh, what this is referring to. All right, we have some... Uh, as I say, I've got some tricky ones. Not tricky, but, you know, uh, hard questions that I want to get to. So we're going to do that in the next episode. But uh, a couple things I want to remind people of. Uh, you want to, of course, listen to the Bob Murphy Show, bobmurphyshow.com. It is, you think the Tom Woods Show is eclectic. <laughs> Tom Woods Show is boring and predictable compared to the Bob Murphy Show. You know, one day it's black holes and the next day it's it's twin studies of twins reared apart. And, you know, who even knows what you're going to get? But it's always interesting. And to be able to hear Bob speak to, you know, like a Harvard professor of, what was the subject? On uh, the income inequality stuff? Is that what you're talking no, about? No, no, no. The, um, it was an uh, astro, you were talking about black holes with. Oh, yeah. Sabine Hasenfelder. Yeah. <laughs> And, and, you know, Bob holding his own and the guy say, hey, you come up oh, with well, a really no, good question. Yeah, you're right. Oh, geez. What the heck was that guy's name? Yeah, yeah. Because you, you're right. Because I, I got mixed up with, with who you were talking about. Yeah, Sabine wasn't at Harvard. Yeah. Um, you're right. It's hard to keep track of all the Ivy League professors you've been <laughs> impressing on your show. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a good moment. Though, that, yeah, he was talking about the black. And then afterwards, he told me. Unfortunately, I had stopped recording. Otherwise, this would have been a great clip to have. But he was like, yes, your questions on black holes were excellent. <laughs> I was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he's not. He's used to probably dealing right. with like the local Channel 5 anchor or something. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so BobMurphyShow.com. And then Bob has some just tremendous resources, books. Uh, some of them are free, study guides. Uh, we'll have that stuff linked at TomWoods.com slash 1603. And we got some tough questions, but some great answers, no doubt, coming up in tomorrow's episode. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.